Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. discussion of modern of women's voice in modern Hebrew poetry with the classical English text that doubtlessly many of you know. In October 1928, Virginia Woolf, foremother to Western women writers and feminists both, delivered a series of lectures to women students at Newham and Girton Colleges in Cambridge lectures that would later be adapted and published in book form under the now iconic title, A Room of One's Own. In these lectures, Wolf names the various obstacles that have, for generations, well into the modern age, stood in the way of, become, of women becoming the writers they know themselves to be. In one of the most moving and oft-quoted sections of this book, Wolf wonders what would have happened had Shakespeare had a wonderfully gifted sister. Jude, Judith Shakespeare, called Jude, Judith Shakespeare, let us say. From this wondering, Wolf weaves a detailed and vibrant fictional narrative in which this girl, Judith Shakespeare, with her brother's genius and passion, flees the confines of her parents' home and of her severely delimited future, makes her way to London to live the writerly life, and finds herself inevitably, it seems, at the mercy of men who have the power and the means she does not. And so penniless and pregnant, fully defeated by circumstances imposed by convention and tradition on her gender, Judith Shakespeare kills herself one winter's night and lies buried at some crossroads. For who shall measure, asks Wolfe, the heat and violence of the poet's heart when caught and tangled in a woman's body. By the end of Wolfe's narrative, Judith Shakespeare, in her tragic death, is alive. Indeed, when I teach that passage, as I do, I note how as the story unfolds, as Wolf skillfully weaves the tale, shifting at the beginning of the tale from conditional verb forms to the simple past tense, my students forget how the story began. They forget that Judith Shakespeare was introduced to them as a fictional character. She becomes for them in actuality a historical person they are amazed to meet. And they often say, how is it I didn't know 
that William Shakespeare had a sister. Mm. And of course, the lesson is, she well might have been a historical character. From early modern England of Shakespeare's day to the early 20th century, context in which Wolfe delivered her radical lectures, the tale is one of steady and steadfast exclusion of women from the literary arts. Poetry in particular, long considered the most elevated of the literary art forms, a literary art propelled by voice, was a creative realm demarcated as especially out of bounds for women. In the androcentric, patriarchal, and often misogynistic traditions in which we live, the women's voice was marked from the very beginning as dangerous, seductive, deceitful, the cause of all evil. It was, of course, Eve in the garden, the sirens on the cliff, the various Jezebels held responsible for leading their God-fearing husbands astray. Within this forbidding and distinctly hostile context, women poets have had to forge for themselves strategies and subterfuges that might allow their voices to be heard. But in the Hebrew tradition, you may be saying to yourselves, we had women poets even in ancient days, yes? You may be thinking of Miriam, sister to Moses, who sings her single verse song in celebration of the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea. Of course, it's worth noting that her song is a single verse. It's also a, a repetition of what her brother Moses sings earlier, worth noting nonetheless. And the prophetess Deborah in the book of Judges sings of the heroism of Yael and the grief of Sisera's waiting mother. Of course, it's worth noting that she does not sing alone. Yes, Avinoam sings along with her, and so on. Nonetheless, we have women poets in our ancient tradition. The ancient markings of female and even feminist voices are fascinating and moving to consider and lead me to assert before you that the history of oppression is not linear, that the ancients may have offered greater equality in their ranks, and that with women rights in particular, there is evidence that from the codification of the oral law in particular, more strident and delimiting rules were put in place regarding what is and is not allowed to women. And so I move from the general terrain of women poets to the topic of today's address, the women's voice in modern Hebrew poetry. From the general androcentric prohibitions and prejudices of the Western tradition, I add to our consideration the specific constraints imposed on the female Hebrew poet, constraints which emanate from three overlapping realms, that of religion, tradition, and language. All three realms have structural elements that are committed to the exclusion of women, to their relegation to secondary positions in society in the best case scenario, and to their complete erasure in the worst. The traditional Orthodox Jewish structures 
place women behind a screen, the mechitza, to be separated, made invisible and silenced, denied any voice in community prayer. The Talmudic assertion, which is particularly just because it is so very powerful, that kol bi'isha erva, a woman's voice, is a sexual incitement, leads to generations of subjections imposed on Jewish women speaking or singing in public, restrictions that, I must tell you, are fully operating today. Certainly in Israel, and not only, but in my environment, this is a debate that is part of the public discourse, believe it or not. And the Hebrew language itself defaults in all cases on the male forms of verbs, and I'll come back to that later, yet again excluding women from representation and voice. The modern Hebrew poet emerges from and within this oppressive context, negotiating and striving to negate their own minority status and silencing. And so I will offer you here a glimpse of a few of the significant modern Hebrew women poets and consider the strategies they adopt in order to make for themselves a tradition that has striven mostly to exclude them. I open my discussion with two poets whose images were recently put on Israeli currency. This happened in November. It was very exciting. Uh, and not to be taken for granted at all. The only previous woman's image to be put on Hebrew currency, you can imagine who it was. Yeah. Yes. Amongst a, a horde of men politicians, religious figures, and also poets. Alterman is on a, a, a note, so is Chernochovsky, so is Agnon, of course. And last November, through the advocacy of people who care, the, the figure of Leah Goldberg was put on the 100 uh, shekel note, and the, the face of Rachel, her beautiful face, was put on the 20. Uh, the 20 bill, and I have to admit to you that I keep one of each in my, in my wallet. I don't spend them, just because they make me so very happy. And there's a quote from each one of them on the back. These two voices are well known to every Jewish Israeli, also because many of their voices, many of their verses have been put to music, and hence are part of the general cultural experience. I would add to this observation that as the mythic status of these two great poets has evolved, steady focus has rested on their unrequited loves, their childlessness, and their early deaths. Rachel died of tuberculosis at the age of 41, and Goldberg died of cancer just before her 59th birthday. That is, both Rachel and Goldberg traditionally been represented as tragic figures, as incompleted women, perhaps the lot of any woman who chooses the male pen in place of the female knitting needle. I would argue that their tragicness makes them more acceptable. Think in the American tradition of Sylvia Plath and her great popularity to no small degree connected to her tragicness. It is a tale that the male canon seems to particularly like. 
But this hypothesis aside, the poems of Rachel and Goldberg have had a place in the male canon from its very inception, and I'm led to wonder how these two poets made a place for their female voice. Let's consider for a moment Rachel's best-known poems, published in 1926, that reads as follows. It's called To My Country, El Artsi. I've not sung to you, my country, not brought glory to your name, with the great deeds of a hero or the spoils a battle yields. But on the shores of the Jordan, my hands have planted a tree, and my feet have forged a path through your fields. Most modest, these gifts I bring. I know this, mother, most modest, these offerings of your daughter, only an outburst of song on the day the light flares up, only a secret tear on your poverty. And I'm sure that as you're listening and reading the poem, you can see for yourselves the strategy she adopts, yes? This is a strategy which I first encountered with the poetry of Anne Bradstreet, 17th century Anne Puritan, which is a strategy of self-diminishment. <clears throat> she names all she cannot do, and thereby she makes a little opening for herself and for her voice to be heard. Now you'll note that she offers instead two gifts, not heroic battles, not spoils, not deeds. She offers two gifts that are distinctly emblematic of a newly evolving Israeliness, yes? Planting a tree in the reclaimed homeland and walking its trails. These are intrinsic to the new Israeli identity. These gifts, unmarked gender-wise, they're unmarked, herald perhaps an envisioning of a greater equality in the new nation that Rachel did not live to see. She dies before the state is founded. But as the poem proceeds, you can see in the second stanza, it is her insignificance in the form of her most modest gifts, repeated twice, most modest, not just modest, but most modest, that dominates the text. She can give only an outburst of song, only a secret tear. In a later poem with similar self-diminishment, she describes her world as, quote, narrow as an ants, and describes her way in the world like the ants as ever threatened, quote, by the hands of giants. I would argue that it is this position of self-diminishment that diffuses resistance to the female voice and allows it to be heard at all. I would argue also that Rachel adopts this strategy with full awareness of what she is doing and what it might accomplish. As she articulates in yet another poem, I know many fancy ways of speaking go to speech as innocent as a baby's, as humble as dust. I've known countless words, and so I keep silent. Mm. The 
paradox of these lines opens into the poem's final stanza where, in question form, the speaker names what she is seeking, and this is, quote, to be heard. Can you hear me from within the silence? Leah Goldberg, the second poet I want to discuss here tonight, shares this newly acquired currency status with Rachel, but she is unquestionably of greater preeminence in Israeli culture, popular and literary alike, and I've spent a great deal of time with Goldberg's poetry, her earlier work, and now with her last collection that was published posthumously after her way too early death in 1970. Indeed, in many ways, Goldberg may be considered the most popular Hebrew female poet ever, with a popularity that increases every year. That she also writes stories and verse for children established Goldberg as a mainstay of early education. Her books for children are classics read and cherished from generation to generation. And I always tell the story that when my daughter was in nursery school she, and I was working on my first Goldberg book, she came home very excited to tell me that she was now reading, you know, that poet, Mama, that you're working on, the one who's dead. That was <laughs> She couldn't remember her name, but she remembered that she was dead. And like Rachel's poetry, many of Goldberg's poems have also been put to music, and they are an integral part to the song track of Jewish-Israeli life. Often Israelis, Jewish Israelis, will sing songs that they don't even know they're singing the poetry of Goldberg, but she's everywhere. She was born in Konigsberg, East Prussia in 1911. She immigrated to Palestine in 1935. She had already earned her PhD in Semitic studies from the University of Bonn two years earlier. And Goldberg chose Hebrew to be her language of poetic composition. It was actually her third language. This was very much in keeping with the ideology of the day. Literature in general and poetry specifically in Hebrew, underlying that, would promote the nation-building enterprise underway. And yet, Goldberg's poetry was significantly less engaged with the nationalistic narrative being developed and glorified in the poetry of her male counterparts. Indeed, one can see her general avoidance of that poetic role. Even more intriguingly, and this is something that I've been investigating because I don't find, find it amongst any of her male counterparts, one can see in Goldberg's poetry a deep ambivalence <coughs> regarding her own new national identity. She chooses, and she does choose, Israel to be her home, yet she is always longing for the European landscapes of her childhood, always. An early modern Hebrew woman poet who refuses the politicization of poetry and expresses a divided identity, and still she somehow manages to claim for herself a significant position in the literary and publishing circles of her day. Often she was the only female poet among many male peers. One must ask oneself, how does she do it? 
Of course, there can be no single answer to this query, and yet I offer one hypothesis, one element, that I believe contributed to Goldberg's acceptance, albeit it was a begrudging acceptance, in the male circle of poets dominating her day, and this is the element of her chosen form. Early in her poetic career, Goldberg committed herself to writing poems in classical poetic forms, popular, popularized and more traditionally identified with male poets. And I'm speaking specifically of the sonnet, and she chose the Petrarchan sonnet, <coughs> translating the Petrarchan sonnet. Now, any of you who write or are aware of this, the sonnet is a very challenging poetic form with a very regular meter, 14 lines, very stringent and severe rhyming scheme. And one must get it right, because if it isn't absolutely right, it is absolutely wrong. And she chose that form for uh, a, a, a great number of her poems. And she devoted herself to this. I am suggesting to you that this form became for Goldberg a proving ground, a manner in which she could assert herself as equal in a male-dominated arena, and she mastered the form entirely. Thus, as her form, the sonnet, the Petrarchan sonnet, was obeying all the rules, so to speak, her content was articulating questions and longings that may in fact have been less acceptable in her day. Let's consider, for example, the poem titled Pine from her 1955 collection, Lightning in the Morning. It's one of my favorites, and you'll see immediately why. It is, it is a Petrarchan sonnet form, even though the translator, who happens to be me, did not stick to the end rhymes, because that would have been a lost cause to begin with. But you can see it's 14 lines, two quatrains, two uh, terracets, meaning an octave and a sestet. And the poem reads as follows. Here, I cannot hear the voice of the cuckoo. Here, the tree will never wear a cape of snow. But it is here in the shade of these pines, my entire childhood comes alive. The chime of the needles, once upon a time, I called the snow space homeland, and the green ice that enchains the stream, the poem's tongue in a foreign land. Perhaps only migrating birds know, suspended as they are between earth and sky, this heartache of two homelands. With you, I was transplanted twice. You, pine trees, I grew my roots in two different lands. Now, obviously, she signals that she's talking about two homelands from the second stanza, quite clearly with what? You know the Israeli landscape. And she has to be talking about Europe with yeah. the snow and the, and the ice. That's not Israel, right? Just in case you had any doubts about that, all right? This is a poem that I have always loved for its frank, exact, and very beautiful rendering of the immigrant's divided identity. That feeling of being ever suspended between places or of being transplanted with roots in different lands. These images and the sentiment they convey belie the Zionist myth of return. The story, she is saying, 
is more complex. <coughs> While the people as a people may have come home, the individual as an individual continues to struggle with conflictual emotions and longings that never subside. And of course, you know as well as I do that in early Israeli culture, to long for someplace else was simply not acceptable, right? We would all be Israelis. There couldn't be any desire for any other place. Throughout her oeuvre, Goldberg returns again and again to the sonnet, and she fills the sonnet with secret desires and loves. Thus, in the masterful 12-part series, The Love of Teresa de Mon, Goldberg develops the story of a fictional 16th century French noblewoman who, as the tale is told, as she tells the tale, falls in love with the young Italian tutor of her children, a man 20 years her junior. Keep in mind, Goldberg herself never married and apparently had more than one unrequited love affair. Of course, the love is unspoken and will remain unrequited. In impeccable sonnet form, the speaker tells of her forbidden passion as though to the unsuspecting young man himself, though he will never read or hear the words. In the eighth poem of the series, after describing a rainy day spent in his company, the man she desires, the poem's closing sestet reads thus, how sweet is this deception, my passion hidden, and your innocence entranced by my maternal glow. And not a suspicion darkens your brow that here, besides the dancing coals, I stole an hour of love. We, we are told in Goldberg's epigraph to the series that this imagined figure of Demon, reminiscent of Wolfe's Judith Shakespeare and situated in the same era, wrote 41 sonnets to the man she loved and was forbidden to love. The epigraph also tells us that when the young tutor left her house, she burned the poems and entered a nunnery. Yeah, you saw that coming, right? And so we read Goldberg's 12-part series as though they have risen from the ashes, as though they are markers not only of unrequited love, but also of all the poems penned by all the women poets through the generations, poems that are lost to us for reasons multiple and varied. I would like to offer you lines from yet one more Goldberg, and I promise that will be the last, in order to show an additional strategy this poet used to assert her voice in a male-dominated arena. The untitled poem is, without a question, one of Goldberg's best-known and most-loved poems. It's also been put to music, so it's part of the, uh, particularly, Memorial Days. It's played on Memorial Days. What's intriguing to me is how this poem that I read as being subversive is wholly embraced by mainstream Israeli institutions, which makes me think that they haven't actually read it. <laughs> um, the poem was published in Goldberg's 1948 collection, and I'll share with you just the first and the last stanzas, which read as follows. 
and will they ever come days of forgiveness and grace when you'll walk in the fields simple wanderer and your bare soles will be caressed by the clover or the wheat stubble will sting your feet and its sting will be sweet you'll walk in the field alone unscorched by the blaze of the fires along fires stiffened with blood and with terror and true to your heart you'll be humble again and softened as one of the grass as one of humankind so a poem of forgiveness and grace Poem's assertion of an alternative to war was controversial in its day and is, I believe, controversial today, too. Of course, the, the, the mantra today is, we will live on our sword forever. Which is a tragic, unacceptable sensibility. Goldberg in 48 was already saying, let's think about days of forgiveness and grace. Tuvia Rubner, Goldberg's literary executor and a, and, a, and a great poet in his own right, argues in his monograph on Goldberg that this poem was Goldberg's response to the literary debate raging at the time regarding the responsibility of poets to write what was known as mobilized poetry. That is, songs of war and triumph, not lyrical poems of love and nature. Goldberg refused that role and this poem, painting a picture of a simple wanderer walking alone through the fields in a posture of humility, forgiveness, and grace, is her answer to the warfare. There is a great deal more to tell about this extraordinary poem and the translation choices made in bringing it into English far beyond the scope of this lecture, but the single and most important aspect of the text an aspect, ironically, that is lost in English, is the gendered aspect of the you. Mm. Yeah. Okay. It is at. Mm. Uh -huh. okay. Incredible. Yeah. Okay. It is at. This is a female you. A woman walking barefoot alone through these fields breathing in the rain, unscorched by the blaze, which I read as her refusal to be scarred by the militarism reigning all. She will love. She gives herself permission to love. And in a rejection of Jewish or Israeli exceptionalism, she will be, quote, one of the grass, one of humankind. It's extraordinary. And just remember, once again, it's written in 1948, which makes it even more extraordinary. The use of the female second-person address, the at, which of course is then part of the verb forms, you recognize that, is of course a departure from Hebrew linguistic conventions where the male form is always the default. That's the rule, the male form defaults. The issue is the language itself and its androcentric assumptions. The male verb forms are the rule, even if the room is full of women and just a single man 
and I know this very intimately, my student population is predominantly female, and there will be a few men in the classroom, and I have had to retrain myself not to follow the rule. I have had to retrain myself to speak to the dominant group in the female, and more than once I get some comment from the man in the room that something is askew. Okay, interesting. So, the 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 male verb forms are the rule. So too the non-specific hypothetical you, right? As you would say in English, you know, right? In Hebrew, it would be atayodea. Even if I'm speaking to a woman, and even if I too am a woman, I offer you here a personal framing. My 18-year-old daughter, a young and fierce feminist has been struggling these last few years with the Hebrew language, which is her native tongue. She, she once told me that she was, she, she had, she was surrendering, that, that, that Hebrew was beyond repair. Uh -huh. And she went into this whole riff of how English was better, even though Hebrew is her language. And I said to her, you know, in English we also had to work hard to make changes. But she's right. Because of the gendered aspect, the, the, the difficulty with Hebrew is far, far greater. So I have to recognize that. She and a school friend took it upon themselves two years ago when they were, in, uh, they were juniors in high school to shift the gender bias of their community, challenging classmates and teachers alike to speak with greater gender equality. Mm -hmm. They really took it on as a personal crusade, and they actually made a change. Even in our home, when the language at the family meal is Hebrew, Talia, my daughter, corrects us <coughs> when we unthinkingly use the male form you. Her personal crusade is an effort to make apparent the male privilege embedded in the Hebrew language. As the great American feminist poet Adrienne Rich wrote in her seminal essay, When We Dead Awaken, Writing as Revision, it was delivered in 1971, and it is still completely relevant 50 years later. She wrote, until we can understand the assumptions in which we are drenched, we cannot know ourselves. This is a project not only of self-knowing, argues Rich, but of survival. We must understand, she continues, how our language has trapped as well as liberated us. Goldberg's simple female form, at, in her 1948 poem, is an act of ultimate subversion, inserting a female body into the language and the landscape as one. This notion of language trapping us with its embedded male privilege is articulated in an intriguing fashion by another modern Hebrew woman poet, Yona Volach, who died also too young. Oh, no, I don't want you to see it yet. I'm going to go back. Okay. <laughs> don't want to give it away. In her short life, Volach managed to disturb the complacency of the literary circles of her day with her provocative and often transgressive poems. For example, one of her most famous and controversial poems, and doubtlessly it is famous because it is controversial, Volach transforms the ritual objects of tefillin into a sadomasochistic sex toy. 
I'm not going to share that poem with you <laughs> beyond my ability. But it has been widely anthologized. Yeah, yeah. Not, now you're now now you're going to keep on seeing that, right? That's it's going to really disturb. Our other podcast, BBM After Dark. <laughs> All right. All right, this sexualizing of the sacred is a central strategy of hers, and one she maintains, this is interesting, is actually intrinsic to the language that is as relentlessly gendered as Hebrew is. She is actually saying Hebrew is obsessed with sex. Okay? And then she gives us this glorious poem called Hebrew. Now, the poem is 79 lines long. I'm only going to give you a little bit less than half of it. But stick with me, all right? It is called Hebrew. About pronouns and gender, English leaves its options open. Every I, speaking about English, in practice is any gendered option. Every she is he when it's you. Every I is genderless, and there's no difference between she, you, and he, you, and all things are it, not man, not woman. No need to think before relating to its sex, but Hebrew is a sex maniac. Hebrew discriminates for and against favors, privileges, in plural, giving men the right of way. Hebrew is a sex maniac, wants to know who's talking. Hebrew peeks through the keyhole, as I did, at you and your mother when you washed in the shed. Your mother had a big ass, but I never stopped thinking. The days passed like showers. You remained a thin girl, soaping herself afterwards. You women plugged all the holes, sealed all the gaps. Hebrew ogles you through the keyhole. The language sees you naked. My father didn't let me see. He turned his back when he peed. I never really saw him. He always hid his sex the way Hebrew, plural, hides women. Oh. Yeah, you want to go find the whole poem, don't you? Okay, that's only half of it. It goes on from there. Hebrew hides the female, states Volach, even as it ogles you through the keyhole. The language and androcentric culture it represents are always and acutely aware of the sexual world. Hebrew hides the female, one may argue, because the people of that language and culture are not only aware of the sexual world, but afraid of it, and afraid most specifically of female sexuality. This fear of female sexuality, which may be articulated also as a fear of female identity and selfhood, expresses itself in a steady eradication of the female figure and voice from representation in the language and in the tradition alike. And so I move from Volokh's provocative challenges to the language to consider yet one more strategy utilized by modern Hebrew women poets in order to assert a woman's voice into the literary tradition. Here I turn to a contemporary of Volach, the poet Norit Zarchik, born in 1941, a significant poetic voice in Israel even today. The Zarchik poem I share with you is intriguingly titled, She is Joseph, referring, of course, to the biblical Joseph. 
the, the first four stanzas, and I'll only give you the first four stanzas of the nine stanza poem, read thus. Rachel sits in the tent, gathering each curl closer to hide them under a silken cap of Joseph, her little daughter. Because if time is running out and all you wanted was a son, what else could you do but lie to alter one sits in the tent in a coat of colored stripes, in public revealed as a boy, in secret a girl she's hidden. Now the whole world knows Rachel's shame is gone. She birthed for the father a son, Joseph, her mother's daughter. Yeah, it's haunting. In the next five stanzas, Zarchi has Mother Rachel foretelling all the woes and triumphs in store for her little girl, Joseph. Woes and triumphs Mother Rachel will not live to see. And the little one, quote, sits in the tent, holds her breath and listens, revealed to all a boy, a girl whose sex is hidden, end quote. The poem ends with the secret that First Rachel, then the girl Joseph, take to their graves. And we, the reader-listener, must imagine the possibility that this central figure in our tradition was, in fact, other than presented to us, and that of Joseph's many identities, from dreamer of dreams and boy in a coat of many colors, to betrayed brother, then elevated person in the court of Pharaoh, the one identity no one ever knew about him was that he was a girl. The strategy Zarchi adopts here has been named by the American poet and literary critic Alicia Ostraker, revisionist mythmaking. In her groundbreaking essay, The Thieves of Language, first published in 1985, Ostraker defines revisionist myth-making as whenever a poet employs a figure or story previously accepted and defined by a culture, the poet is using myth, and the potential is always present that the use will be revisionist. That is, the figure or tale will be appropriated for altered ends, the old vessel filled with new wine, initially satisfying the thirst individual poet, but ultimately making cultural change possible. For the woman poet, the practice of revisionist myth-making is often a complex assertion of a female presence or perspective in, a, in an arena hitherto populated solely by men and previously seen only through a male gaze. For the modern Hebrew poet, the practice of revisionist myth-making is even more complex and daring, as the revisionist poet is, in fact, in the case of She is Joseph, challenging the seemingly sacrosanct authority of a foundational religious text. And yet it is this and other poetic revisions that offer the possibility of opening these ancient texts to provide greater equality, inclusion, and hence relevance. As part of her discussion on revisionist myth-making, Ostr Ostraker suggests 
that sometimes the revisionist myth-making poet will express herself through formal experimentation. And so, I offer you this poem from the other side of the 20th century. It is by Efrat Mishori, a contemporary poet. She's my age. It is called The Wall of Motherhood, and it looks like this. Obviously, in Hebrew, it's situated on the other side of the page, right? You got it. All right. The two sides of the wall of motherhood are the same as the two sides of a piece of flat paper. Not exactly, because the wall of motherhood is like this poem. It, it's re-sung and also result of the wall of motherhood. I'll just tell you one thing about the translation process. <laughs> the, the most interesting moment in the translation process, obviously, is the final two lines, where in e English, I, I divided the motherhood and I get... Mm, Otherhood, which is pretty cool. In Hebrew, it's different, obviously. You take the word imahut, which means motherhood. You divide, she divides, Efrat Mishori divides it into two, imahut. Mm -hmm. And imahut, motherhood, becomes... Lack of identity. The absence of identity. Oh, my God. <laughs> Even though you could also see E as an island. So she plays with that. Pretty but she, she's, she's supportive of this translation because the translation has to use her particular strategies, which are so intriguing. The graphological experimentation of Mishori's poem demands of us, the reader, a different reading practice, one that unsettles and challenges us with its deviance. And I use the word deviance quite deliberately. Words are rammed against the right margin in the English rendering, against the left in the original Hebrew. And against that margin wall, words start to fall apart, break into pieces. The visual experimentation of the poem is, of course, manifesting a radical thematic position, a querying of what motherhood is or is not. The notion of motherhood as the ultimate and most fulfilling female experience is itself a central and one may say sacred myth of Western culture. In Mishori's poem, motherhood is also otherhood, a wall and unraveling. As I come to the end of my address here tonight, I am fully aware of all the women poets of modern Hebrew poetry whose names and whose work I have not mentioned. The list is long, but only to mention a few to give you a sense of the variety. There is the often overlooked but central figure of Esther Rab, who was born in Petah Tikva, and so she was a native poetic voice of native landscapes. She has beautiful poems, and they've been translated into English. There is the singular Zelda, which many of you know, because her poems have made, made their way into English early, and they're often in, 
incorporated into prayer and into song and into rituals. She was, as you know, born into a prominent Hasidic family, and her deeply spiritual poetry has been embraced by religious and secular Israelis alike. There is Dalia Ravakovich, a significant feminist voice and a poet who devoted herself in her last books to very bold protest poetry. There is Brachaseri, of Yemenite background, whose poetry challenges the Eurocentric bias of the Hebrew literary canon. And there is Agi Mishol, born in Hungary, only daughter of Holocaust survivors, one of the most prominent poets publishing in Israel today. And finally, there is the poet who publishes under the name Dalia Falach, whose poems first appeared in the late 1970s, but whose identity is unknown <laughs> until today. And I've, I've translated some of her poetry, so I've been in email contact with her, but I don't know where she lives, I don't know what her real name is, I don't know how old she is, I know nothing. And one can only hypothesize she hides that information, mm. and so on. The list is, of course, a sampling only. It is in no way comprehensive. I am only acknowledging the width of the canvas and the complexity and variety of the woman's voice in modern Hebrew poetry. The claiming of a voice in poetry and otherwise is and has always been complex and dangerous. As I was sitting in my study in the Galilee writing this lecture, I couldn't stop thinking about the timeliness of these considerations as the Me Too movement grows and exposes the way women have been robbed of their voice. I have to admit that I have been particularly preoccupied and haunted by the story of the more than 250 girls young women abused for decades by their doctor, Nasser. Stepping up in court, and you all watched this as I did, one after another, these women faced their abuser, finally speaking out, and we all know that the judge is a hero in her own right. It's been for me hard to comprehend how such abuse on hundreds of girls continued for decades. But in reading the newspaper reports coming out now, what is clear is how deeply entrenched is the culture of female silencing. We must acknowledge how the society we live in, in the 21st century, throughout our supposedly enlightened Western world, has a deep-rooted practice of female silencing. And it is still robbing women and girls of themselves. And so I end my address here with another poem by the late great Goldberg. The poem is titled Toward Myself. And it, it was the last poem in the last book that she published in her lifetime. She published a book in 1964 called With This Night. And the last poem she put in this book is Toward Myself. And because it's such a significant text, I took it and I 
use it as an epigraph poem in this final collection that was published posthumously. I read the poem thinking particularly of my daughter and all my young female students, hoping they find ways early in their lives, earlier than Goldberg, to speak their truths and walk confidently toward themselves. I offer you first Goldberg's voice actually reading it. Let's see if I can do this, and then I will read the translation for you. Ashanim perpisu et panai bezichrona havot, vaando lerashi putai kertafkali, ad yapitim or. Beinai nishkafim hanofim, utrachim shavarti yishru tzadai. Ayefim אם תראני עכשיו, לא תכיר את תמולך. אני הולכת אליי בפנים שביקשת לשווא כשהלכתי אליך. And the English is, The years have made up my face with memories of love and have adorned my hair with light silver threads making me most beautiful. In my eyes are reflected the landscapes, and paths I have trod have straightened my stride, tired and lovely steps. If you should see me now, you would not recognize your yesterdays. I am walking toward myself with a face you searched for in vain. breakthrough that you're seeing with poets and poetry, is it happening sequentially as well in music? Mm -hmm. Is there, are the words in the songs recognizing gender or? The, 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 the types of strategies that mm -hmm. the women are using, mm -hmm. yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, it's poetry and music. And definitely. You're talking yeah. about music with not not songs. not classical music you're talking no. about songs yes no, yes no, absolutely yes yeah. yes yes absolutely there's a very vibrant musical scene in Israel and some extraordinary female vocalists who have mm -hmm. taken the stage some of them I'm sure you know because they've also traveled to America the one who jumps to my mind first just because I adore her is Achinon Nini mm -hmm. I think she goes by another name in America I think she goes by the name Noah and, uh, Noah and and Noah. and an older an older vocalist who is she, she's still producing and doing incredible work is of course Chava Alberstein who's been around forever and has one of the most glorious voices ever but there there are many younger voices that are very much declaring their own uh, their own identity through music yes absolutely Oh, goodness me. <laughs> I, I've actually been traveling around these last two weeks, and I gave two, two lectures on just translation issues uh, because it's such a fascinating, um, it's such a fascinating 
subject to, to wrap our minds around. Um, look, at there's so many. The, for me personally, as a poet, myself, the most important challenge uh, is music is how does one transfer music from one language to another? And the answer is one does not. The answer is one must recreate a different music in the, the, the translation. So I can't, I can't recreate exactly what the Hebrew is doing, but I must be tremendously attentive to it so that I can create some other music that will give the sense of the transcendent poetic form that, of course, Goldberg is giving. I said that in the sonnet, I don't even I don't go for the end rhymes because the end rhymes will simply ruin the poem. However, if I have a poet, or if I have a collection by a poet, so for example, the last collection by Goldberg, she doesn't use end rhymes at all. But in that collection, there's one poem where that does have end rhymes. That poem, I better give it end rhymes because clearly it is saying something different from all the others. I don't need to do it with the sonnets because everybody knows what the sonnet is, but I must have some musical element. That's the first one. The second one is, of course, the gendered aspect, which is always present and must always be related to in some fashion or another. And yet, you can see in this poem, how numb and will they ever come days of forgiveness and grace, that the you is ungendered. And, and it's just ungendered. So that particular statement is lost, but for the note at the back, which is there. But the, the English language reader won't immediately encounter this mm -hmm. female figure. And that female figure is so, she's, I don't know, she fills my heart up in a way that I can't even describe, because I also know what it would have been in 48 for that single figure to be wandering through the field. So that's number two. Number three, Hebrew, as I'm sure you know, is, is a highly inflected language, which means that a lot happens in a little, right? Mm -hmm. So that you can have gender, tense, object, noun, all in one word. When you transfer into English, English is a weakly inflected language. That's part of what's happened to English since its earlier incarnations. And the result is that the slenderness of a Hebrew text is often lost. And that's something else that one has to deal with and consider. The final one, yeah, and obviously there's many more, but the, the other one which preoccupies me and which is always a, a glorious challenge and makes me very, I, I was raised in an Orthodox home, and it makes me tremendously grateful to my father, Allah Shalom, and to my mother, that I, I was raised in that culture, uh, is obviously all the liturgical and the biblical resonances. And what's important to say, which people don't adequately understand, is that the liturgical and the biblical references are present in all Hebrew poetry, not the Hebrew poetry of Zelda, and not only the Hebrew poetry of the older generations, but as Robert Alter says, it is the woof and weft. I had to look up woof and weft the first time I read that. <laughs> woof and weft. It is the it is the ta it is the strings of the language. So I was translating a, a poem in this last collection, and she's Goldberg is talking in a very colloquial way about a train passing the station. She says the train passes the station. Ve, and then she says, Velona sati enai, which in colloquial Hebrew means, and I, I didn't look up. Velona sati enai, I didn't look up. 
obviously every single Hebrew reader will hear. What will they hear? Betach. Every reader, Hebrew reader, from the little girl to the older generation will hear Esa enai el They will hear Psalm 121. Even though she's not saying Psalm 121. But the frank the, the way in which that line comes to us, every, and I've tried it out. Like I've gone around and I've said, read this, what do you hear? Right? And I live in a secular community. Everybody hears it. It's just there. And so you have to somehow signal that. And so the translation will not be, I didn't look mm. up. The mm. translation will be, I did not lift up my eyes. Now, I always say that part of me really wanted to write, will not lift up mine eyes, <laughs> but I held myself back. <laughs> that would have been overkill. Yes, but, but I almost feel like you can hear it. The moment I say, will lift up my eyes, you can hear it. So, there's a lot more. It's a wonderful field. It's really So, is it, do you think it would be easier to translate Hebrew into another gendered language, like Spanish or French? Yeah, that's a. Yeah. I, I look at. I don't. I don't yeah. know. I would imagine yes. I would also imagine that uh, yeah, Spanish and and uh, and French are more uh, are more inflected than English, so that would also make it easier. Or German. Mm -hmm. German is highly inflected, and so you would get that. Mm -hmm. um, even even though I do have to say that we you know that part of the challenge is that Hebrew has Hebrew and English have no kinship, and Hebrew and Spanish have no kinship, and right. Hebrew and we're not part of the same family of languages. So the the an interesting question, and we know the answer. Translating Hebrew poetry into Arabic would be easier, and vice versa. You know, the the, the same family of languages. Even though it's you know easier, who needs easier, right? Overrated. <laughs> Overrated. <laughs> well, thank you so thank much you. for joining us. This is absolutely wonderful. It's a pleasure. Definitely. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.